I want to start with a reminder that uh, keeping silence is really a gift to others and to ourselves. We call it noble silence because it has the capacity to support deep healing and transformation. So it's very important that we that we do keep the silence. Another practice that supports that kind of uh, listening inward is uh, not trying to make eye contact. Um, it's very common because we're moving around to different places together. It will naturally just happen more, and a, a warm smile, you know, if you meet someone else's eyes, is fine. But not trying to get someone to look at you to engage when they're. Um, yeah, we, we, we try to really focus on our own experience. Just reminding about those things. So as we gather here, this very different environment than what we might have been experiencing most of this day outdoors, It's also an opportunity to sense into what our group energy feels like. And so that's something we can practice throughout the retreat. It's something that I often um, notice and pay attention to is that I'm not just sitting and having my own experience, but I'm surrounded by others, and that that can be something that we can connect with, just like we connect with the energy of, of the earth, or the, all the qualities you all named yesterday that you were getting in touch with. You know, feeling into the group can also be um, a supportive practice. So this taking refuge in the Sangha, right? We can practice that, feeling the Sangha. And so the Sangha is made up of humans, but we know it's also made up of trees and turkeys and squirrels and chipmunks and all the beings that we're practicing with and among. So it's also an opening to consider all the life that is around us as our sangha, as our spiritual community. So we can practice that in our sits and walks. 
to feel that sense of being held. Especially if we, where we live, we don't have a spiritual community, a sangha to practice with. That can be a very beautiful thing to take home with us. If we have a path that we walk on, that path is part of our sangha. The ocean waves, we can take refuge in that as our sangha too. This capacity to touch into the energy of the life around us, whether it's human life or more than human life, it's an important sense. We've been talking a lot about opening our senses, how nature practice really enlivens all of our senses. So I was really getting curious about how we tend to think we tend to think of and talk about just five senses of right our sight smell hearing taste touch but that i've experienced practice but also learned that research and i'm sure meditative uh, exploration has also found there to be many more than those five senses. And those are also things that we're cultivating, especially as we sit outdoors. So I wanted to just read to you some of these other senses. And uh, maybe we can see together if, if we've experienced any of these senses so I'll just uh, name that the commonly held definition of a sense is any system that consists of a group of sensory cell types that respond to a specific physical phenomenon and that corresponds to a particular group of regions within the brain where the signals are received and interpreted. So these senses, many of them I'm going to share, have been tracked in research that they respond to specific parts of the brain. So we know we already have the five senses. So there's also the sense of pressure, Anyone experience that sense? Can you raise your hand? <laughs> okay. The sense of itch. Anyone experience that sense? Okay. It's actually considered a sense because there's a distinct sensor system for itch than touch-related senses. Very interesting. So there's thermoception, the ability to sense heat and cold. Has anyone experienced that? Okay, good. We're all alive. Um, So this is actually thought of more than one sense, not just because there's two hot and cold receptors, 
but because there is a completely different type of thermoceptor in terms of the mechanism for detection in the brain. And these thermoceptors in the brain are used to monitor internal body temperature. So there's the monitoring of what's ex- what we're experiencing in our extremities, and then there's the internal. And then there's proprioception, which is this sense that helps you know where your body parts are relative to other body parts. So it's like... If you're pulled over and the police say, close your eyes and touch your nose, it's that knowing where your body parts are. And so every, every time you, you, know, if you scratch your foot with, with your hand, but you're not looking at your foot, but you know where your foot is, you know where your hand is, right? That's proprioception. Has anyone experienced that sense here? <laughs> okay. And there's, there's tension sensors, which are found in your muscles and allow the brain the ability to monitor muscle tension. Have, have you all had that experience where you notice tension and then you're able to release it? So that's the tension sensors. There's equilibrioception. That's your sense of balance and also uh, works in terms of acceleration and directional changes. And this sense also helps us to perceive gravity and it's in our inner ears. So if anyone has had that messed with, uh, you know it causes real havoc. Anyone notice that they're able to maintain their balance yeah especially walking slowly right there's we can easily get off balance stretch receptors is a sense found in the lungs bladder stomach gastrointestinal tract so this sensing of the stretch Um, that also uh, functions to dilate blood vessels. Um, It can be involved in headaches. So there's thirst. That's a sense. It goes to a particular part of the brain, hunger. I'm sure we all know that. Um, There's our ability to detect magnetic fields. Um, and then there's a sense of time which is debated um, how uh, that there's not really one singular mechanism that we can find that helps us to perceive time but um, but research have sh- has shown that humans have a amazingly accurate ability to track time especially children um, so, and there's different sense, different receptors that know long-term time and short-term time. Any of you had that sense? <laughs> Come online here. Ooh, this it. It's time for it to end. 
or we've been walking a long time, or, or maybe it's, it's just been just right or, or short. There's also um, a biologist in the UK, Rupert Sheldrake, who has done research on the sense of being stared at. I know we're not staring at each other here, but it's just an interesting uh, phenomena that's also not necessarily accepted in mainstream science, but detectives use this. And they know it well. They are trained not to stare at the people they're following from behind because people feel it and will turn around. So that's another sense. It's kind of extrasensory awareness, right? Maybe we have felt that here also, of just knowing something was there with our, with our eyes closed, without looking at it, but feeling feeling it. It's kind of what I was talking about at the beginning, of tapping into this sense of being in community. And there are other people, an eco-psychologist, Michael Cohen, who talks about 53 senses, many more than the number I just shared with you. Um, mental senses, chemical senses, feeling senses, like even knowing air pressure, right? And gravity, radiation senses, the sense of color and moods, sense of temperature. And his point with naming all these other senses is that we are sensory creatures and... Um, our senses are a huge part of who we are and that they are originated to help us survive, to really thrive in, in our world, mainly outdoors. Right? If we think about the course of human history, most of it has not been indoors. That's a more recent thing. But because now our life is so much indoors, as Mark mentioned, said Americans spend, people in the U.S. spend 95% of their time indoors. So our senses have little to do, and consequently they become underdeveloped or over, overly sensitive because they're dulled. And so that's connected to all the many ailments that we have in our society of depression, anxiety, stress. So you could say we're not very alive when we spend so much of our life disconnected from all these different parts of ourselves that are really important and and developed for a reason. Um, And so here, as we sit, as we walk, as we eat outside, we're developing, we're reconnecting with these really important parts of, of being a human, of being alive. 
So I wanted to also share about this experience of Vedana that we talked about today. Just as we want to bring more awareness to the underdeveloped senses that we have access to, that we are doing here, I want to bring particular attention to the feeling tone of neutral. Um, And just to say, Vedana, that term, uh, someone asked how to pronounce it. It's the emphasis is on the first syllable, so Vedana. Um, And it just means feeling tone. So, With neutral experience, most of our experience is neutral. According to the Buddha, also uh, backed up by scientific research. And it's the easiest one not to be aware of, but it's a really important place to bring awareness to. Because it's the absence of unpleasant. And if we don't note that, then neutral experience easily devolves into unpleasant. Right? So there are all these moments of our life that are okay. They're not painful. And... um, And it's important to um, to know that, right? Like walking here up the hill and just n- breathing in the air, just breathing. That can be very neutral. Often we're not feeling very pleasant or unpleasant, just breathing in air. But remembering what friends told me about how it was to be in the Bay Area with all the fires a few years back where everyone had to stay indoors or wear masks to go out before COVID. Um, how, how difficult breathing was. And the, the neutral experience gets shifted, right? When we remember, oh, this is not smoky air. That's... That's pleasant. I can breathe clean air, right? My teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, often tells the story of how we can appreciate a non-toothache, right? When you have a toothache, it's so painful if you can't get to the dentist. Finally, you get the toothache taken care of and you feel so relieved but it lasts a few days, maybe, maybe just a day, and then it's normal again. Then that feeling of not having a toothache becomes neutral. But we can shift it back into uh, something to really appreciate. The non-stomach ache, the non-headache, the non-argument. Right? 
So this is from a sutra from the Majjhima Nikaya 44. And it says, Neutral feeling is pleasant when there is knowledge and painful when there is ignorance. So interesting, right? Neutral feeling is pleasant when we know it's neutral and it's painful when there's ignorance. So then it says the underlying tendency for greed underlies pleasant feeling. The underlying tendency for repulsion underlies painful feeling. The underlying tendency for ignorance underlies neutral feeling. So our tendency is to not recognize neutral. That's where the boredom, the confusion comes in. So if how many of us have experienced boredom on this retreat so far? <laughs> Good. Okay. So that could be a practice for boredom is to to notice if it's if there's a neutral feeling. To know neutral, not be ignorant of the neutral. Another thing I wanted to share about Vedana is just the difference between when we talk about pleasant feelings and we talk about noticing the the tendency to grasp at pleasant feelings. This came up uh, as I shared about it today. There's a difference between savoring pleasant feelings and being attached to them. And savoring pleasant feelings is really important. We really need to take in um, these things that nourish us. And we can do that in a way that is um, open-hearted, fully receptive, and not, not in a grasping way. Right? We can take in that this is pleasant, the flavor of the soup, or the stability of our posture. And if we really take it in and really let it nourish us, that can lead to contentment, to this feeling of having enough, and which is actually an antidote to greed. Right? So savoring the pleasant versus trying to hold on to the pleasant can really support us in freedom and uh, support us in joy. That came up also today. The sense from some folks of finding this practice so pleasant, so joyful that there was the question, am I doing it wrong? Something, something must not be right here. If it feels so good, it's supposed to be supposed to be difficult, right? But just to say that joy, ease, these two things are factors on factors of of awakening. They're enlightenment factors. They're part of our path of of freeing our hearts and minds. So we don't need to 
think anything's wrong if we're feeling joy and ease. So, feel free to savor. And just notice if, if it turns into attachment for that thing, just notice that. But don't, don't be afraid to really enjoy the pleasant. So I'd like to spend the rest of this talk sharing about walking practice. Because this has been a really um, important practice for me. And there's so many, so many Dharma doors, it's said. And there's many different Dharma doors with walking meditation, many ways to walk and uh, cultivate freedom. I remember once in Plum Village, one of the practitioners, one of the lay Dharma teachers was teaching the children about walking practice how to walk mindfully, because in Plum Village everyone walks all together and there's always families and children and children walk silently with us for an hour. It's really, uh, yeah, participating. So she was explaining that the earth is like a dragon. It's this living being and the the grass is like the hair of the, on the dragon's body. And that we can walk and really connect with this living being. And I remember practicing that after she gave those instructions and it really shifted how I experienced walking. That I was really in touch with this sense of me being alive, the earth being alive, that I was feeling the earth, that the earth was feeling me, and my feet felt very tingly and like connected to something in a way that I hadn't felt before. So Khalil Gibran says in The Prophet, beautiful book, And forget not that the earth delights to feel your bare feet and the winds long to play with your hair. This sense of we want to connect with the earth, we want to be with the earth, and the earth wants to be with us. That's how it lands for me. When I think of... this being pulled to go and be outside. I think part of it comes from within me, but I think part of it comes from the earth. It gets lonely if we stay inside too much. Come out and play. So there's... um, 
there's a whole realm that is really on offer when we when we take refuge in the earth right we talked about taking refuge in the three jewels the earth is a jewel we can take refuge in the gem of the earth one of the things that's really been profound for me in my practice is really touching the earth whether it's laying my body full on the earth or prostrating like in child's pose or even just sitting on the earth and touching it. This sense of being able to lay down on the earth the things that are heavy and difficult for us and also receive from the earth especially if we feel tired or drained, exhausted, we can lay on the earth and ask the earth to to take our tiredness, to restore us, to give us energy, to give us support. It's very uh, energizing for me to sit up against a tree to put my spine up against a tree trunk and just connect with that kind of support. Even if I'm not tired, um, more energy flows into me, connecting with the tree. We can practice that as we walk, offering our attention and our steps, but also this exchange, whatever, whatever it is that you might want support with to transform, you could practice. You know, laying it on the earth, giving it to the earth, asking the earth to help you. The earth has these amazing powers of transformation. Right? The earth can transform all the waste into compost, into great uh, food for for all sorts of things that we want to grow. We can see how how our difficulties, how our our places where we're stuck, how that might be also composted by the earth, inviting the earth to support us. Really bringing in the earth as a practice partner. And maybe as we walk. And then there's also the way in which the earth holds all of our history. It's this, this experience of the ultimate is there when we touch the earth, when we walk with the earth. All generations are there, are part of the earth as we walk with the earth. They're in us as we walk with the earth. And so one of the practices that I really 
have appreciated is calling upon people who I know have walked powerfully and walking with them. So contemplating Harriet Tubman, amazing. I think of her as a saint who kept going back into the South to free enslaved people. And she freed many more people than anyone else on the Underground Railroad. And she was very small. She was young. She was in her 20s, 30s. She was risking her life each time. She knew how to walk. She never lost a single person on any of her trips. She knew how to walk and keep people safe and find her way, this magnetic field sense. She probably had so many senses that were open, helping her do that. So when I walk, I... I sometimes call on Harriet Tubman who could walk with that kind of courage, that kind of determination, that love. And when we walk, we can also call upon ancestors like Mahagosananda, a great Cambodian teacher who, after losing almost all of his family in the genocide of Khmer Rouge, he walked across Cambodia. Thousands of people followed him, just reciting the Metta Sutta, just reciting. May all beings be happy and safe. Hatred never ceases through hatred, but by love alone does hatred cease. So we can walk and we can walk with Mahagosananda. These incredible bodhisattvas. My partner is Polish and he uh, tells a story also of a, a person in Poland during World War II who walked powerfully. He was a Jewish doctor and a famous children's author. His name was Janusz Korczak. And he was known for taking care of Polish and Jewish orphans in Warsaw. Korshak had built several remarkable orphanages that functioned like little children's republics, where orphan children had their own democratic government, court system, newspaper, and where each child's voice held the same value as that of an adult. On one August day in 1942, 
German soldiers came to his orphanage in the Warsaw Ghetto to collect his 192 children. As a well-known personality and author, Korshak was offered numerous chances to escape, including by a German officer who recognized him as the author of one of his favorite children's books. But Korshak refused, saying he could not abandon his children. Eyewitnesses tell us that upon the arrival of the arresting officers, he gathered all the children, asked them to put on their best and most festive clothes, and together they formed a procession walking towards the train that took them to the concentration camp. As Korshak led the group out, holding a little orphan in his arms and followed by almost 200 more, their procession radiated victory and celebration. It was as if they were walking towards the very altar of God. They walked peacefully with their heads raised high. They walked with dignity, with freedom. They walked like they already had won the war. It was as if they were saying to the Nazis, you can kill us, but you can't kill our spirits. You can't kill love. People who witnessed that procession said that amidst all the uprisings they had witnessed during the war, this was the most powerful act of resistance they had ever seen. There was something supernatural about this because even though they were marching towards death, They possessed life in a way that is rarely seen. So the way we walk can be a powerful act of resistance, of transformation. So we can walk calling on all of these beings, great beings, who have walked with courage, with dignity, in the midst of great difficulty. And we can continue them. We can carry on their legacy as we walk. I often visualize when I'm walking that I'm walking in the footsteps of Thich Han of Thai. I see him walking in front of me. I'm walking after him. He has shared walking meditation with thousands of people all over the world. Mark talked about doing walking meditation with Thai here at Spirit Rock several times with 2,000 people walking mindfully all together in silence. So we can walk in the footsteps. We can walk with great beings. We can also walk on behalf of those who may not have the opportunity to walk as we do here. 
I think of Jarvis J. Masters, uh, a black man on death row in San Quentin, close to here. He wrote a book called That Bird Has My Wings. And that title comes from a story of him that he tells in his book. He says, one day there was a seagull out on the yard in San Quentin. It had been raining and the seagull was paddling around in a puddle. One of the inmates picked up something in the yard and was about to throw it at the bird. And Jarvis didn't even think about it. He just put out his hand to stop the man. And this escalated the man's aggression and he started yelling, who did Jarvis think he was and why did Jarvis care so much about some blank, blank bird? Everyone started circling around just waiting for the fight. The other inmate was screaming at Jarvis, why did you do that? And out of Jarvis's mouth came the words, I did that because that bird has my wings. I'm sure he does walking meditation on death row. We can also walk Walk for him here. Can bring into our awareness those that are wrongfully imprisoned, those that are sick, those that are suffering, those young women, activists, journalists detained in Iran. children, refugees, people in many places, maybe people in our own communities, in our own families that are struggling. And we can walk here on behalf of them, bringing them along in our awareness, sharing with them the peace, the stability, Whatever it is that we're touching that is nourishing for us, we can share that with them. Just like we share the merit at the end of a practice period, at the end of a a retreat, we offer up all the good qualities we've cultivated so that they might quench the thirst of so many beings that are struggling We can do that as we walk, walking with, for, together in our awareness with those that that deeply struggle or suffer. It's a way to also acknowledge that we are embedded within systems of real harm and destruction And it helps us to not be so complicit in these systems, really 
practice of transformation, right? We bring in these these beings that may need compassion. So we might try this as a compassion walk for one of our walks tomorrow, bringing someone to mind and sharing with them this beauty, this refreshment of this place, the silence, the stillness, the spaciousness. Let's sit for a moment in silence together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.